0: Well, howdy, howdy, Miss Halston. Let's go for a walk on the Rainbow Trail. Oh no, the last time you forgot the umbrellas and got us into a whole heap of trouble. I
1: won't forget this time. Let's go.
0: other to weather the rainbows howdy howdy y'all and welcome back to weathering rainbows podcast Uh, today we have a very important episode um, probably one that i i consider our most important um, because it deals with uh, the bible belt and coming out in the bible belt a lot of our viewers are rural listeners Uh, a lot of them are still closeted a lot of them are still dealing with the effects of being raised in the bible belt And dealing with family members that are incredibly religious uh, and many of them are fundamentalist. Um, So today we are going to talk to Bernadette Barton about Pray the Gay Away. Um, I will forewarn you, um, this book is incredibly insightful. Um, She interviews uh, 59 lesbian and gay men uh, ranging from 18 to 74 and the insights in the book really were eye-opening even to me who is, I'm from the Bible Belt. I was raised here and I, I come from a rather fundamentalist, uh, family. Um, so I will also warn our viewers and listeners that the things that we're going to talk about on this episode could be incredibly triggering. Um, I will tell you reading this book, um, there were times whenever I had to put it down because of the flashbacks and traumatic events, uh, that many of these individuals went through. Um, So I don't say that to scare you from coming out. Uh, The point of this episode is to address the fears of coming out. Um, It's so important for us to understand why we're afraid of something so that we can do something about it, um, so that we can start making those steps to overcome those fears and live a life more true to ourselves. Um, So today, like I said, we have Bernadette. I do want to get right into this book, Um, but if you do find the need to turn it off, Um, Turn it off and come back whenever you are ready. So today we do have uh, Bernadette back with us. Uh, You all probably recognize this face. She was one of our most uh, watched episodes in a prior episode um, on a book that she has done. Uh, But today we are covering uh, her book, Pray the Gay Away, um, which was written uh, how long ago?
1: It uh, It was published in 2012, but I was working on it from probably 2007 to 2012.
0: Yeah, and I would say uh, there's so many different people that can get a lot out of this book. Um, I kind of wrote down four uh, people that groups of people that I feel should definitely read this book if they're capable. Um, For those of you out there, if you are LGBTQ individual coming out to religious parents, I think that's an important book for you. Um, If you're parents of an LGBTQ plus individual uh, that has been raised in the Bible Belt, whether you are supportive or not, this book is going to be crucial to understanding. Um, Third is individuals whose partners grew up in the Bible belt uh, that may not be from the Bible belt so that they can better understand those partners and some of those fears that they have uh, with social interactions. Um, And then finally, uh, which there's a lot of other groups I'm not mentioning, but finally uh, LGBTQ plus individuals that want a better understanding of the LGBTQ plus movement kind of in red states. Um, We often hear from blue states, but not as much from the red states. You really do a great job uh, kind of kicking off why we fear this. And I think you do it through this idea of the panoptic gaze. You talk about the panoptic prison. Can you tell our viewers what that means and and your insights there?
1: Sure. So I draw on um, the theory of the panopticon, which is a prison design Uh, And then it was something uh, Michel Foucault expanded upon. He was a uh, post-structuralist writing uh, in the late 20th century. So the Petopticon prison design is, um, if you think about, so that happened somewhere in the um, late 18th century. Jeremy Bentham redesigned the prison. So the prison used to be all these little cells with people in all these little cells, and then guards would walk up and down to see the prisoners in the cells to sort of watch them to make sure they were behaving well. Um, but the panoptic design uh arranged the prisoners in a circle. So um so one guard was in the center, and then the guard in the center could see prisoners along like a think about like um like a um what's a good way to, like a star, like a star design. Right. You can look in any direction and you could see a prisoner. Um now, of course, one guard couldn't watch all those prisoners at the same time, but what it did was engender in uh the people the feeling of being watched. So if you feel like you're being watched, you regulate your own behavior. Um, so what I do when I um, extend this analogy with the Bible Belt is show how LGBTQ plus folks in the Bible Belt, you know, we grow up feeling like we're being watched, that 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 conservative Christianity, like the ideology um, makes us feel like, you know, that, you know, pastors and, neighbors and teachers and parents and even god himself uh are watching us so you know ready for us to sin so that causes us to discipline ourselves and prevents us uh sometimes from being out
0: right and I, I just you were talking about this, and honestly, it is around Christmas time, and I just I get this idea of, like, the elf on the shelf that parents use today for their children. Um, you know, my mom babysits, and she's got the elf, and she moves it around the room. And, you know, it's, so it's like someone's always watching you, even if they're really not. Um, mm-hmm. To me, it almost, it reminded me of the phrase, like, a death by a thousand cuts. You know, LGBTQ plus individuals that grow up in these areas, they're constantly listening. Um, Can you kind of explain some of those things uh, that are said in rural areas uh, that kind of build this uh, feeling that you're always being watched, that being gay is not an okay thing? And the reason I'm having you do this is so that our younger viewers can start kind of compartmentalizing those things that we just see as everyday culture.
1: Okay, so um, I spent quite a lot of time in the beginning of the book exploring how many Christian signs and symbols are just basically in the landscape. And and, and it took me a little bit of effort to actually pay attention to these and see them. So it's, it's all the churches, and it's all the fish signs, and it's all the references to Christianity, and all the questions about what church you go to, um, and then the crosses that people wear, and, you know... Expectations that if someone says, let us pray, even if you're at a business meeting or a athletic event, you're supposed to pray. So we just get so used to all this like Christianity baked into the environment that we sometimes stop seeing it. Now, if you are a sexual or gender minority in the Bible Belt and you've been raised in a church, which are, to be frank, most of them in the Bible Belt that are not all, but, but I'd say probably probably somewhere in the 80 to 90% range of Christian churches, you probably heard messages that homosexuality and, you know, gender transition is sinful. So, and an abomination, you've heard that kind of languages, language. Now, now, hopefully not, like I hope that wasn't your experience, but for a lot of folks it is. And even if you only hear that a couple of times, it really makes an impact because it it tells you that there's something wrong with you there's something inherently wrong with you that god won't love you if you're gay and it may even be that your family member family members don't agree with that probably a lot of them do <laughs> but there might but they they may not and you may not even know because they don't even say like so they'll hear that they'll hear that oh homosexual is an abomination your parents your aunts and uncles your grandparents and and if you're the gay the queer kid if they don't respond, if they don't actively say, oh, honey, you know what? We don't agree with that. Like, or they challenge the pastor about it or bring it up at dinner. If they just let it slide, which most of them do, or perhaps even worse, agree, um, you get the message that there's something wrong with you. And that's a just profoundly terrifying experience. This, this, this fear that when you're so little, you know, the most important thing is your family's approval. And right. to fear that you can lose your family's approval or your family's love and your family's support, not to mention, you know, spend all of eternity burning in hell. I mean, it's frankly child abuse is what it is. Right. Um, and the fact that so many queer kids have gone through this and lived to tell the tale doesn't make it any better. So in my book, I really shine a spotlight on it as abuse and mm-hmm. hopefully give folks some language to deconstruct it and make sense of their experiences. because. What happens when you're a kid and you hear that? You just kind of think it's my fault. There's something wrong with me. I did something wrong. I need to hide this. I should be ashamed. I'm bad. I'm wrong. God doesn't love me. No one's going to love me. On and on and on.
0: Yeah. I really love the fact that you brought that to light in the phrase, uh, you know, we take these like value neutral Christian symbols. You know, if you're just out and you see a cross or you see someone's shirt that says saved, um, and honestly, I've even started doing that with. Things like the American flag, if somebody's got an American flag T-shirt um, mm. because of the, you know, biblical Bible thumping, you know, Trump era of, you know, it just feels like you are not safe in these environments. Um, one story I do want to bring out before kind of switching into um, a, a new topic is you told a story about um, that. There was uh, churches that have, you know, gay choir directors, uh, gay pianists, those kind of things. And there was almost this like unredeeming quality, like you could not be redeemed. Could you uh, talk about that?
1: Well, there was a story that one of my participants shared, uh, and he he was in Texas, and he was a member of a black church. Is that the one you're thinking about? Yes. Okay. He was a member of a black church. And black churches are interesting places. Um, They're... They seem like they're a little less likely to just actively kick out, you know, a black member. But they do expect, if they're homophobic, there to be, uh, you do really exist in this don't ask, don't tell space. So um, the interview subject, uh, he, I called him Robert in the book, and they're all pseudonyms. He just told this kind of incredible story about this church that he went to and the choir director, and the choir director was gay. And he just... Created, he managed to bring out this uh, the most amazing sound out of the choir. Um, so he was the music director, and he just poured so much energy and time into this church and um, really did an awesome job. And then he ended up dying of AIDS, and the church where he was the music director would not even hold his funeral there because he had died of a gay disease. Yeah. And so this just really struck Robert as, you know, You know, no matter what, you're just not part of us. If you're gay, you're not one of us.
0: And I I really think as a kid, especially you, you start compartmentalizing those things, you know, growing up, you know, I was grew up in a fundamentalist church and I would hear, you know, gays are going to hell, abomination, all that kind of stuff from the pulpit, but it would also be the things that were said outside of that uh, realm that really started to implant in me that, that being gay was not okay. Um, And I started realizing that, you know, seeing these examples of people that even were suspected as being gay, that there was no redemption that they could ever do in order to be a part of the church again. Um, So no matter how much you gave, you just couldn't, it was just, there was no way to become a part of it. Um, So I definitely think that that is kind of what sets the tone of why we start to fear being gay um, in the Bible Belt. I want to switch now uh, to talk about the alignment and toxic, the toxic closet that you bring up. Um, I love that phrase. It's very um, eye-opening to me. Uh, but first, you kind of broke things down into the three parts that may not align with a person. Um, you talked about sexual attraction, behavior, and identity, and how that there are times when those three don't line up. Can you kind of give some examples so that people know where they might fit there?
1: Sure. Um, and it's a real fun kind of uh, quiz to give a person. What are the three dimensions of sexual orientation? Um, and they are attraction, behavior, and identity. So attraction is obviously who you feel desire for. Um, and that's something that we really can't control. We can't, we don't get to control who we feel an attraction for, or if we feel attraction at all in the case of asexual people. So that's just something we don't, we don't get to pick. Uh, And then behavior, of course, is who you have sex with, what kind of sexual activity you have. Now, it's best, of course, if behavior and attraction go together. Like, I'm attracted to this person, and I'm going to have, you know, a sexual encounter with them. But they don't need to. I mean, and if you think about sex workers, they have sexual activity all the time with people they're not attracted to. So you can flat out always engage in behavior as work or or a favor or whatever you want to (laughs) do. (laughs) And then the final dimension is identity. And then, of course, it's best if they all align. So I'm a woman who's attracted to women, who has sex with women, and I call myself a lesbian. That's all aligned. Um, But it doesn't necessarily work that way. because So where where attraction is something you can't pick, identity is something you get to pick, regardless of the other two variables. Um, And public health specialists have a category called MSM that uh, is shorthand for men who have sex with men, And that's to describe men who are attracted to men and who have sex with men, but do not call themselves gay or bisexual. So you can be attracted to men, have sex with men, and still call yourself heterosexual because identity is what you get to pick.
0: Right. And I I actually, I just got through watching uh, the story of uh, Tammy Faye Baker and her husband and stuff like that. And that's kind of that example of, you know, someone that's high up in the church that that is attracted to men, that has sex with men, but never identifies as homosexual, you know? So there is these three components to kind of the idea of being gay. Uh, One question I have, though, is, uh, so for instance, I think there's opportunities whenever someone doesn't necessarily hide one of those things. So say, you know, they may not identify as being gay, even though they kind of fall into the other, the categories but there's also this uh, thing that kind of happened to me in which I, after coming out, felt almost that I had to overcompensate in one of those areas. So for me, I had to like overcompensate in my gay identity to prove to my family, Mm -hmm. to prove to society, uh, you know, I had to dress differently. I had to act differently. You know, I had to kind of, do more in the behavior and identity to prove that. Did you find that um, happening a lot within uh, your research?
1: You know, that's not something I really explored, but now that I think about it, I I think psychologically a lot of people go through that phase where they're trying to express an identity and that those are the tropes that society gives you for how to express it as a way to sort of prove to yourself and others. So I would say Mm -hmm. that's pretty common. And in fact, folks did talk about that if you remember in chapter three, I, I write about um, Joshua and he's is a big, long, complicated story. But one of the right. things he did was have a whole, um, you know, suitcase of gay clothes in his uh, trunk of his closet and he would of his car right. and he would change what depending on where he was.
0: Yeah. Um, and we will definitely get into his story uh, very soon because it was one of the most touching ones for me. Um, I, I do want to talk about. Um, you, meant you talked about flaunting sexuality, um, and while what I was doing wasn't necessarily flaunting sexuality, we often hear the, the phrase of, you know, I just wish they didn't flaunt it as much or uh, that sort of thing. Can you uh, talk about how that that fits, fits in with this idea of the toxic closet?
1: Yes, and in fact, I spend a little bit of time calling out that phrase as just flat-out bullshit. Like, that's an (laughs) illustration of just doublespeak. That is, like, domination politics at work. That's heterosexuals, you know, framing the debate in a way that keeps LGBT people, you know, on the ground with their boots on our necks. It's bullshit, and it totally pisses me off because it's just ridiculous because, first of all, heterosexuals constantly flaunt their heterosexuality. Like, every second of every day heterosexuals are talking about how heterosexual they are. They're talking about their husbands and they're talking about their kids. They're talking about what they did on Saturday night and they're talking about the barbecue. They're going on and on and on. So, um, so anyway, that's one way that heterosexuals are constantly wanting their heterosexuality. Um, And they don't get to pick for us either. Like they don't get to say how gay or not gay we get to be. And for them to assume that they have that right is incredibly patronizing and offensive.
0: Yeah. And to me, the uh, idea of flaunting, it's more of the regulation of the identity. And I think that's what we see the most struggle with uh, in the Bible Belt region um, is, you know, we we have a lot of people that fit in those first two categories of, you know, attracted to males or something. And then also, uh, you know, the behavior of of acting upon it. Um, If you go on Grindr or any social app, you will see countless um, faceless profiles um, that are out there. Um, so I definitely think identity is, is what's hindered the most. And I think a lot of that comes through that uh, rhetoric of, you know, don't flaunt it, don't be this, mm-hmm. H- hide it, you know, put it, put it in, a, put it in the closet. Um, and we recently had in Owensboro a situation um, at the river park center in which uh, there's been some protest uh, of a drag show. It's the only drag show in our, our area. Um, and there was uh these, Christian fundamentalists that came down and were protesting and trying to get this banned from our city. Um, I really loved in the book that you talk about visibility being kind of the key factor in these toxic environments, um, and that you know through this uh, increased visibility, you can start changing like the learn negative beliefs um, that's within these people that never see gay culture. Um, can you talk about? Uh, do you think that that isolation and seclusion still exist as much today
1: i think it's better than it was in 2012 for sure and i think the more institutional support we have for um lgbtq people there's a trickle down effect so of course same sex marriage marriage equality was was huge um in gaining um you know just respect and visibility and then. The, don't, uh, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military was also huge. I mean, so, if you know, the, the, the family that's incredibly homophobic, maybe it won't matter, but the family that's kind of on the fence and doesn't have a strong opinion might be like, oh, well, if the U.S. military says it's okay, who are we to, like, you know, fuss about it? <laughs> and yeah. then just the more people who come out and the more people who voice from pulpits and um, general assemblies that it's, that it you know, LGBT people are, you know, deserve rights and are people too, and shouldn't be treated differently. You know, those things have a powerful impact and it's what I call a trickle down impact in communities and families and churches.
0: Yeah. And I I definitely agree. It's kind of ironic, you know, at the river park center, they had, you know, they've even had shows like kinky boots um, in which, Mm -hmm. you know, no protest, face no protest. But the moment they start having what's called a drag show there, um, you start kind of getting a lot of these protests and stuff from individuals. Um, And I I do definitely agree that a lot of times it's because nobody contradicts those opinions for so long. You know, they don't have to pass a gay bar. They don't have to pass uh, by, but what triggered this event was uh, there was a symphony the same night as one of the drag shows. Uh, So the people going into the symphony had to look across the street at people in drag. So it started this, you know, outbreak and uh, One thing I do love is uh, we ended up with 10 times the support uh, within our community um, to combat that. And I think that really starts to show them, hey, visibility is here, you know, and and that's what's needed to kind of help our culture. Um, I want to switch to the idea of articulation. Um, It's something that living in a rural area, I still definitely struggle with, um, you know, to have that bravery to be oneself and to voice it. Um, compared and contrasted to the feeling and need to feel safe. Um, you gave a great example of, uh, you talked about Anna and the the, the preacher's wife. Can you kind of tell that story and talk about the impacts of inarticulation?
1: Okay, absolutely. So uh, it's one of my, my favorite theories that I developed. I call it the condition of inarticulation. And I also use it in my book, The Pornification of America. So it's this idea that, that we don't have words to talk about a phenomenon and we don't have words because we're a minority group and we haven't been allowed to have words to talk about our experiences and to voice and, and been allowed to have a voice about our experiences. So I, I talk about closeting in a, in a multifaceted way um, with this focus on us, uh, the LGBT people existing in this condition of inarticulation. And the example that you're talking about was a story, a personal story that I shared. So Anna is my wife now. At the time we were we were actually married. We'd had a civil union in Vermont. Um, and what had happened was she's from Pikeville, and when was this? I don't know. Maybe it was like two thousand five or two thousand six. And um, her aunt had died of a drug overdose. So it was it was very sad, and it was really painful, and it was of course one of those deaths that everybody has a is triggered by has a lot of strong feelings about. Um, and so we were headed to the funeral. Uh, we were at the funeral, and, no, it was after the funeral. So anyway, she was, Anna was raised, her grandparents were old regular Baptist, which um, is a very fundamentalist, uh, conservative Christian type of Christianity. And so it was an old regular Baptist funeral followed by uh, the burial in the family cemetery. So I was there with Anna, and I was chatting with the preacher's wife, who was the one who had done the funeral service. And it was so awkward because I was standing there next to Anna, obviously with her. And you can see me. Like, I'm, i am like, one of those people. Like, like people loved to introduce me to their parents and their... Like, I'm one of those people right. that can <laughs> chit-chat with anyone that, like, that is so mannered and pleasant. Like, I... I'm just used to being someone who's worth introducing. (laughs) So (laughs) so I'm sitting there with Anna, and Anna's talking to the preacher's wife, who she knows because it's Pikeville, and, like, everybody knows everyone. And she doesn't introduce me. And I was super upset about it. Like, I felt awkward. I thought it was rude, too. It's like, this is an older woman. And you're supposed to interact with an older woman in a certain way. And one of those ways is you're supposed to say who you are and why you're like, you know, you're supposed to, you know, announce yourself kind of (laughs) like, like I call it, I don't know. I just felt like it was incredibly rude, not only to me that I didn't get introduced, but to her, because she deserves to know who I am. So anyway, (laughs) that happened and it was incredibly awkward. And then later, um, we were talking about it and i was that we thought about it a little bit in the car i was trying really hard to be understanding i knew everyone was upset about the aunt who had died and i didn't want to make it about me cuz i i i didn't i wasn't trying to center myself i just felt mm-hmm. like it was just so ridiculous that i didn't get introduced <laughs> and then so from my perspective that i was upset and then from anna's perspective i do this in the book she had a lot going on. She, I think she actually even gave the eulogy. She was scared that the preacher's wife would be rude to me and then she'd have to deal with it. So she yeah. she just didn't have the bandwidth to do anything more than what she did, which was to make very kind of wily small talk. Oh, a lot of Bible belt gays are really good at making wily small talk that <laughs> doesn't reveal any personal information. And Anna's an expert at it. Some gay people, you might have noticed, if they grow up with that Bible Belt stuff, sometimes they're not good at talking. Like, they almost have a chip on their shoulder, and they're, like, stuck with talking. Um, And I don't say that in a judgmental way. I think it's just an adaptation to not being able to actually speak about yourself. But in Anna's case, she's good at speaking, and she just is careful about what she reveals. Okay, so that's her perspective. And then from the preacher's wife's perspective— you know, she probably meant, well, maybe she didn't want to be homophobic. She didn't, you know, she wasn't going to intrude and demand on who I was, because that's another part of the condition of inarticulation, is that heterosexuals don't inquire and don't assume someone's gay because they think it's rude to assume someone's gay. So it's like this incredibly complex set of dynamics that happened in just this one moment. And there were three really distinct perspectives. And you know, the question is, what would have had to change for us to connect in a different way? And, you know, yeah, visibility I, I, is what I wanted, but not what Anna wanted. And then the preacher's wife might have been actually flat out rude, And then that would have been super stressful.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I love that story because there were so many different dynamics going on. And, you know, that was one of the things in the book that really stood out to me because I had never kind of framed that. So I love that you framed it as, you know, this inarticulation and the idea that you've got to consider everyone's viewpoint and why that there may or may not be doing something. It may not be for the reason that you're thinking, you know, Anna may have been concerned that, you know, something bad could have happened to you. And that's why she, you know, protected you rather than, you know, what you wanted, which was visibility. Um, And I am positive that all of us have had those experiences with our significant others and, And various things out there um one kind of turn on that is uh so and i'll use this as an example like uh the other day i was literally yesterday i was in the store um and i was you know paying for something and there was this man and his younger uh, i guess nephew or something with him and talked about he was like i don't have any money he's like because i gave it to my homeboys um, and he's like, well, you should have given that to the girls uh, because they can at least give you something back, you know, which is in, – that's in its own accord bad, you know, dealing with that. But in my mind, what I immediately go to is why can't the boys, you know, like, you know, why can't he hear that being gay is okay, you know, that sort of thing? Why was that even really brought up in that scenario, you know? And I just want to, like, my inner self is wanting to, like, make some sort of comment – to just be like, dude, don't say that, you know? Uh, but what I find is, is whenever we're in these situations and just, it's just one of us. Um, so I know like, for instance, you address in your book, uh, whenever you come out to your class, you often do it through kind of a passive way. You know, my partner, Anna, and I went on a date. How do we as uh, single folk... <laughs> Find the strength uh, to interject and to open up whenever we don't have that. uh, Or are there passive ways in which we can reveal that without dropping that bombshell? I guess is a good way to phrase it.
1: Yeah, that's a good question because it it is very easier to come out by referencing a partner because it's just casual. And then people can kind of take a beat.
0: And I did that all the time whenever I was with someone. So, like, Mm -hmm. I can totally tell the difference of whenever I'm with someone, I'm a lot more confident to say, you know, my partner and I or, you know, my boyfriend and I went to dinner or, you know, whatever. But whenever I'm single, I struggle to voice those concerns.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're single and you're looking for someone, which, again, you're still dependent upon the idea of a partner to, to ease the way, you could just be like, hey, you know anybody? You know, I'm looking. I'm on the front here.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it
1: does center your romantic life in a way that maybe you don't necessarily want to do. You want to let someone know that you're gay without without making an announcement. See, that's another illustration of the right. condition of inarticulation. It's like there's no easy words to come out if you're single. So it's an illustration of a hermeneutic injustice, you know, lack of words among oppressed people to express their experience.
0: Yeah. And I definitely think that that's uh part of what triggers the, uh, identity shock that a lot of us, uh, kids that were raised in the church go through of, you know, dressing more gay and, and mm-hmm. trying to allow people to identify it on us without us having to say it. Um, especially, I mean, for those of us that, that can pass, you know, I can walk down the street mm-hmm. and nobody knows, uh, And I've literally had family members that, you know, or people that are dating someone and they like, you know, my uncle's gay or, you know, something like that. And their partners are like, what? Like that he revealed no signs whatsoever that he was gay. So, Mm -hmm. like, I think we do a lot of that um, with our fashion choices and stuff like that to kind of start uh, passively uh, kind of revealing that about ourselves. So I just kind of wanted to see your opinions on it um i want you to talk about this idea of uh cuz we're going to start getting into the more of the religion topic um uh, the idea of discredited versus discreditable and i believe the quote in the book uh it says while 95% of my informants uh believe that their own sexuality uh was something ascribed immutable or out of their control uh and hence discredited more conservative christians institutions teach that homosexuality is discreditable and thus a choice um what were the other, what did the other 5% think on that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, some some LGBT people do see sexual orientation in terms of choice, not the same way that, well, I guess a few did see it in the same way that conservative Christians do because they were raised in deeply conservative Christian households and they perceived an element of choice. Um, but there, among a, a lot of progressive LGBT people, the idea of seeing sexual orientation as a choice is um is is common that 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 sexual that's that 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 sexual desire can be changeable i'm personally in my experience i think it's more fixed than fluid i think that and in fact most almost everyone that i interviewed described their um their attraction is in a born that way manner. And even if you think about bisexuality, which is the capacity to be attracted to the same gender and other genders, there's often a very born that way quality to that too. You can't stop that. Um, So uh, I'm someone who always believes people when they say, this is my experience. So people are saying their sexuality, their sexual desire is changeable. That's not for me to say it's not, but I, you know, in my experience, Um, as an expert talking to lots of people about it, almost everyone I've come into contact with would, you know, see it as more fixed than fluid.
0: Um, my question, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Um, so viewers out there, they're in no no form or fashion. Do I believe what I'm about to ask this question? Um, those you've talked about, you know, sexuality being attributable to three different traits, attraction, behavior, and identity. Um, If homosexuality is all three of those traits combined, and we're only viewing attraction as the uh, item that is not changeable, a lot of your biblical scholars and stuff will say that, you know, well, you can still change your identity and behavior. And if those are part of homosexuality, um, how can a person not then sort of change um, the idea of being gay? So can they not live a righteous life by just changing their identity and behavior, uh, even though they still have this attractiveness component that they can't change?
1: Well, I have two answers for that. And, And one would be surely, you know, a lot of folks could have sexual behavior with someone they're not attracted to. Is that a meaningful and authentic life? I would say probably not satisfying life, happy life, probably not. Is it possible? Probably, it certainly it's happened, so yeah. But I also think it's a good idea when you pose this to flip the script and ask heterosexuals about their attraction. And, and I do this uh, with, uh, in public talks and in the classroom and I ask the heterosexuals in the room, so tell me when you knew you were straight. And I actually really have them answer. <laughs> I'm like, and so yeah. well, they start answering. They're like, oh, I was six No, oh, I was 12. And I was like, well, how do you know? How do you know for sure? And they're like, oh, I had this crush on this little girl. I just knew I always felt that way. On and on and on. I'm like, I believe you, I say. And then I say, well, what? And this is a question gay people are asked. Well, how do you know for sure if you haven't had a same sex experience? Right? Isn't that what queer people are asked yeah. all the time?
0: All the time.
1: Yeah. And at this point, I don't make them answer because I'm not trying to put them on the spot with that. But I'm, I'm just trying to get them to think about it as a thought experiment. And then I'll say, well, you know, who here, you know, you're not homophobic. You just don't care. You just don't really, you're just not attracted to people of the same sex. You know, it's just not your thing. You don't care if other people do it, but it's just not your thing. And you're sure about it. You know. And you, you know, no amount of prayer, no amount of counseling is going to is gonna make you gay. You know, no matter what you do, that's probably just not going to happen, right? So, and then I asked them to raise their hand if that describes them. They're not homophobic. They just know for sure that they're straight. And, you know, most people raise their hand at that point. I was like, well, it doesn't seem to me like you chose your sexuality. It sounds like your heterosexuality is a really fixed thing. So, um, th- that might help you perceive how it's fixed for people who have same-sex attractions as well.
0: Yeah. I think that's the perfect answer and and definitely something I, I kind of read in the book and will definitely be using in the future myself. Um, in the book, you talked about the alignment um, and how in the Bible belt um, specifically, there's an alignment with family, with churches, with businesses, with um, schools, with uh, local government that, In some of these local regions, being gay is an abomination, and it's an abomination regardless of which of those uh, sections of society you find yourself in. So there's this like almost uh, chain that's unbreakable, you know, because everybody, they they believe this. Um, In your studies and kind of speaking with uh, all these different uh, LGBTQ members out in rural areas, did you find any successful uh, ways that they were able to start breaking those links down? Um, at those, uh, local levels. Hmm.
1: Well, of those, the most important dimension for an LGBT person's well-being is family. So if you have your family support, you can endure all those others. It's awful, yeah. but you can get through it. If you don't have your family support, you're really in a rough place. Yeah. So, <clears throat> So it depended upon whether the individual had their family support or not. And a lot of folks had to break things off with their families or they, they were ostracized. They were kicked out of the families. Um, a lot of folks moved away from their communities where they were trapped um, to more urban and uh, more anonymous areas. So one of the things, I know that your Weathering Rainbows is about rural areas. And one of the things that defines rural areas There's so much wonderful about the rural. I actually am a fan of the rural, but it can be very insular and everybody knows everybody else's business. And that should be really great if you need help getting your dog to the vet or your grandma needs someone to pick them up after their colonoscopy or, you know, it's like that's great. You know, (laughs) people care about each other and break casseroles, but um, if you're gay and you can't be out and you're not supported, it's off. So getting away from that is can be real positive. So, so I, people would move away from those communities and start a life somewhere where they could be themselves. That happened a lot. And then of course they would leave those churches. Um, it's hard though. I mean, religion is complex and I know we'll get into it more. And when you've been brought up in a religion and you've been taught that that's what you should believe, it's really hard to release those beliefs. Um, But the degree to which LGBT people could release beliefs that homosexuality was a sin, they could create something new for themselves spiritually. Or just, you know, take a period of, uh, you know, not be religious, unreligiously identified, perhaps forever.
0: Yeah. I think uh, kind of a segue from that, you know, there are those that, that take this path of, you know, away from religion. Um, but I loved in the book that you, I mean, you kind of summed up the book uh, That's you said artificial social barriers that separate groups can often evaporate uh, when the enemy understands that I'm just like you. Um, I absolutely love the story of the cruise ship. So I'm going to have you tell that story and talk about how that that kind of broke down that barrier there.
1: Oh, sure. Um, Ann and I did, did an Olivia cruise and Olivia is an organization uh, that was created I think 40 or 50, 50, maybe 60 years ago. It was like, like basically vacations for women and vacations for lesbians in particular. So Olivia is in a lesbian organization and they um, they do these amazing cruises and you know resort stays all over the world. They're pricey, but they're super fun as you can imagine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we went on one for our, um, I think it was our 10-year anniversary we went on Olivia Cruise. We saved up, and it was a blast. Oh, no, we went to a resort. It wasn't a cruise. We went to one of the stay, stay resorts in Mexico. Um, and the Judy, who's the owner of Olivia, was there, and I asked her if I could interview her for the book just to see if she had any insights. And she told this wonderful story about... Um, one of the Olivia cruises was was landing it at, at uh, one of the Caribbean islands, and I forget right now which one it was off the top of my head. And there was a protest plan because um, on this island, well, it was a homophobic culture in the island, and there were people from churches coming to protest the arrival of a whole cruise ship full of lesbians, you know, coming. So it was a big deal, and they told the women to be careful, and they weren't sure they would disembark, and and so the women came to the decks to kind of see what was going on and watch the protest. And the protesters uh started singing um a Christian song. And um, of course, a lot of the women had been raised Christian and knew the song, so they started singing too. So everyone yeah. was singing this same <laughs> Christian song, and it was this beautiful moment because it seemed to just drain all the, the uh the negative energy out of the interaction and, and shortly after that the protesters just left. So it was just this moment yeah. of, you know, evaporating the hate with this, you know, connection that everyone had in common, this Christianity and this Christian song.
0: I, I love that story. And it's it's something that I've started uh, talking with people more and more about is a lot of times LGBTQ culture we uh, embrace our differences so much, you know, we have our drag shows, we have, you know, uh, our pride events and different things that are, that are kind of different from, um, uh, heteronormative culture, you know, that, uh, th- and that's a lot of times what, you know, people see the most. And I, I love that story because I got to thinking about all the possibilities to bring your families into an environment to where they may not be, uh, Accepting if they completely know what's going on. But for instance, uh, bringing your family member to the gay chorus or uh, something like that, that, you know, you just tell them, hey, you want to go to this choir singing, you know, event. And then they get there and they can kind of see that, you know, they're singing gospel songs up there, you know, like there are gay people that are that are Christian, you know, there's people that are like us. Um, so I definitely I love that story. A question I, um, I have, I'm hoping you can kind of address some younger audience members that may be coming out for the first time. Is there any rhetoric um, that you think that has been somewhat successful from uh, younger gays that are coming out uh, that can kind of remind their families that they're, they're the same person or they're just like you, that, that mentality, um, other than just dropping that bombshell of, you know, I'm gay? Um,
1: mm. Is there
0: any advice there?
1: I think it's kind of fascinating that um, young people are coming out younger and younger and younger, like stories about 10, yeah. 11, 12-year-olds at pride parades in Chicago. Just, And I think that more and more parents, well, especially not in the Bible Belt, <laughs> are supportive of their kids. And And I also think it's just kind of tragic and heroic at the same time that so many young people don't even think there's anything weird about it. So they don't even understand that they're doing something, you know, that could get them some blowback when they come out, especially if their families haven't been very, you know, virulent in expressions of homophobia. So they can be shocked um, by, you know, teachers and parents and religious leaders reacting negatively. Um, In terms of rhetoric, you know, what I think is valuable is just not being afraid to talk about it. And I know sometimes it's hard to find the words. And I will say that um, in my own experience, I came out at 27. So I was really a lot older. And, and um, I, so I was an adult and I was a feminist. I had a strong critical consciousness. I just, I was clear. Right. My, most of my family was really supportive, but my dad was shockingly not. And I was so surprised because it was just really, in my experience, very out of character for him. And I said that to him, I said, dad, and we had a period where we didn't talk as much. And I was like, dad, this is just really upsetting me that you don't accept me being with a woman. Like, this is not how you raised me. And I don't understand why you're like this. Right. And those are some simple words, but even those words are better than no words.
0: Yeah. To address it, I I definitely agree. Um, there was a, a a line in your book uh from one of the the members that that talked about um how that they let me read the line um he said it was actually very helpful for him personally to come out uh, that he could talk about being gay and that he could relate to other gay people uh without the um without having to immediately abandon or change his faith drastically um, and I think that a lot of LGBTQ members that are in the Bible belt kind of experience that. They don't want to necessarily lose their faith. Um, so my question from your research is, is that, you know, knowing all these stories, do you believe it's actually possible for an LGBTQ person to remain spiritual? Um, and and then I'll ask a follow-up question after that.
1: Um yes absolutely christian christians don't own spirituality
0: <laughs>
1: right <laughs> well, for sure like that is an internal thing your spirituality and that's 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 like your body that's that's you you get to have that. that no one can take that away from you and um so and if you want to express that spirituality in a christian framework you get to pick that's, that no one owns christianity either so right. <laughs> You may not, it may have to look a little harder to find an affirming church if you want to worship with uh, in a community of people, but it's very possible. You know, I've given a lot of these big, big public talks on it, and every single weird little hole in the wall that I've given a talk, when it's come up, people in the audience will say, you can come here. My church is accepting. In every single little tiny place, there's at least two or three affirming Christian churches. But, you know, maybe you don't want to be Christian. Maybe you don't even believe in Jesus. Maybe you think the whole thing is just not your cup of tea. Well, there's paganism, and then there's Hinduism, and then there's just meditation. There's your own spiritual path. So you don't have to be trapped in Christianity. You know, we some people argue that raising any child in a religious faith is a kind of child abuse because people should choose their own spiritual orientation.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great answer to that. Um... The uh, next topic I want to discuss is regarding expectations. Um, So we're going to start getting into some of the more uh, tragic stuff that we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. on this show. So uh, for those of you that are listening, this is a a point in which I do want to caution you uh, about going forward if you're not prepared. Um, I want obviously there was many, many, many tragic stories uh, within this book and. Uh, So, for instance, uh, one such story, there was a a girl who quite literally got chased by uh, her mother with a butcher knife um, after coming out. Um, But what was really eye-opening to me, um, and it's – was how desensitized that I personally was to that story. And what made me realize that was your follow-up line that the the GSA students – you know, they listened to that story, and it was just something that was almost like an everyday conversation. There was no horrific event there because we just expect these things. Um, so my question to you is, uh, first off, what should an LGBTQ person born in the Bible Belt, uh, knowing all these stories, what things should they expect um, prior to coming out?
1: Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs>
0: And I know Um, that's loaded.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it depends on your family. So hopefully you have a, I think it's important if you're thinking about coming out, that you have a gauge of where your family stands, if you're financially dependent on them. So you want to get a sense. Are they they people that are likely to be supportive? Are they going to kick you out of the house? Are they going to stop paying for your college tuition? You know? Are they going to stop talking to you? So what's what's going to happen? Like, so you should have some clues by now. And if you don't have any clue, that you probably haven't been paying very close attention um, for whatever reason. Maybe because it's too scary to pay attention to. So there are. I guess I would encourage if you really if you really don't know, I would just start testing out the waters with the topic. Talk about a friend of yours ellen who came out to her, her mom and her mom was so supportive and you know you're really glad about that and you know remember ellen was over here the other day and you know you all are doing x y and z together and see how they respond i would test out the waters that doesn't mean that they're going to be supportive of you even if they're happy before ellen <laughs> um and i guess ah uh, you don't want to risk your material well-being. It isn't, um, it, there's an internal pressure to come out and it can just feel like you're living a lie if you're not coming out. And that can be really, really hard. Uh, but it could be worse to be homeless. I know that's not an, an equation you really want to have to make. Um, and I hate to say that you, you might have to think about it, but it's probably wise to think about it. Um, and if you if you do feel like you're going to come out no matter what because you just have to, which I actually think is good. Have a backup plan if it goes south. Absolutely. Have somewhere you can go stay, come out to somebody else first, come out to your aunt who you're pretty sure is gonna be accepting and then just ask her, do you think mom's gonna be all right with this? What do you think mom's gonna say? Test the waters with other family members first before you come out. And then if you get your family on board and they're supportive, if you have to deal with being out at school and church and all that stuff, well, at least they have your back. Uh, and that will help you get through it.
0: Yeah. And I, I found um, myself asking questions that, that didn't, weren't even very specific about being gay or pointing out uh, homosexuality. Um, to kind of test those waters. So for me, uh, one of the things my mom brings up all the time is she remembers me asking the question, you know, why don't I like girls like the other boys in my class? Like, why don't I want to have a girlfriend? Why don't I, you know, and, and really those were what I call tester questions, even as a kid. Um, And her, her, advice and opinion at that time was it's because you're so academically focused, you know, I was at the top of my class, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And a lot of us do excel to kind of ignore all these things that we're hearing I- internally. Um, so I definitely think that there's ways to do that, um, just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying in terms of testing those waters, uh, to see what your expectations are going to be, um, and definitely be prepared on that. Do
1: um, you have any brothers or sisters, Curtis?
0: So I have two older brothers, um, and the oldest is a Baptist minister, so it does not go well. Um, and, mm-hmm. and my story is, is also very similar in the fact that, you know, I was kicked out of my church, uh, very publicly, um, and, and that sort of thing. So, um, like I said, I definitely, um, the, 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 Joshua story was very uh, close to my heart. Um, mm-hmm. I did not experience it quite to that extreme um, but there were very uh, much similarities in, in mine in that story. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later for sure. Um, before we do, I want to talk about, um, and we'll circle back to kind of the expectations, um, cause that's what this show is mostly about is for people that are, that are afraid of coming out. You know, what can they expect those kind of things? I want to talk about activism, um, and kind of this personal balance, uh, for those people that are like you and and myself that that are that are public um we hear all of these horrific stories okay well you know and this is something i experienced reading the book you know i become became pretty triggered and and had some re-traumatic uh events that came up in my mind um i want to ask for people like us um first off how do we kind of what's your suggestions on like a rejuvenation um a balancing of uh Personal happiness with the fact that we are hearing all of these horrific stories. And I'll be honest, I became pretty depressed reading (laughs) Pray the Gay Away uh, just because of its impact was similar to my own. Um, I don't know how in the world you managed to interview 59 people with these stories. And and that's something coming from somebody who literally interviews people (laughs) for a podcast on a regular basis. How did you get through that?
1: It was pretty exhausting, and I was working all the time. But I guess I was incredibly passionate about the project. I just felt like it was so important that these stories be told. And it was kind of surprising to me that I hadn't already been told. It was such a, it's such an obvious story to tell about the Bible Belt. So why hadn't it already been told more? <laughs> so, and then if it hadn't been told more already, then definitely it behooved me to... You know, get those stories out there because it was just, it's just completely ridiculous. It's just so wrong. I think I was really fueled by this passionate feeling that this was wrong and people needed to know it was wrong and they needed to think about it and do something different. Like, we don't need to do this. Like, this, this doesn't need to happen. Like, this shouldn't happen. So that's, I think that's where I was emotionally and psychologically with it.
0: Is very driven. Something that we've talked about in terms of we become desensitized to these stories. I mean, it's it happens so frequently. You know, um, I know the movie Conversion just came out and stuff like that. And it's just my question to you is how do we fight against uh, that desensitization uh, within our communities um, you know, how do we become, like, rightfully angry, kind of as you were, you know, this passion to do these things even whenever they hurt?
1: Um, well, for me, what I do is that I still teach about it. So I teach a course called that's titled Religion and Sexuality, and I use my book, Pray the Gay Away. And, and even, and I guess it still surprises me, Curtis, but students read the book. And they have the response that you're having. They kind of have. They have PTSD. They get upset. They even sometimes cry in class. They um, they they get really. It's really hard for them. And and since the material is familiar to me, I it still kind of surprises me that that happens. But I I think it speaks to the power of the stories. So yeah. I keep talking about it, and I keep kind of talking about it in ways that show them that it doesn't have to be this way. And then I expose them to like a wide variety of religious perspectives uh, and, and it encourage them to think just in lots of different ways, open up their minds about belief systems and then about their own internalized beliefs about LGBT people, including possibly themselves. And I find that journey of transformation for them to be just so empowering for them and for me, that that really helps me from, uh, getting desensitized.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, some of the, some of the spiritual harassment in the book is, is absolutely a uh, heart wrenching. Um, and one such story, uh, was about a girl who uh, was being hugged tightly by her parents. I believe it's one of the first stories in the book, um, in an effort to basically take the demon out from her and place it on her father and that was what they truly believed that they could do they could ta- that they could take this burden away from their daughter and place it on the father the father was more spiritually inept to handle this situation with fighting the devil um and while that story was so incredibly heart wrenching later in the book it was something that i just had a gut shot uh, <laughs> and that was whenever the partner i believe of of that uh, person um said at least her parents fought for her my parents didn't even care enough to try to me it's absolutely wild to believe that an lgbtq plus individual uh, in the bible belt would actually crave uh that after hearing those terrifying stories uh but i honestly i find that very often to be the case um do you get a sense that those individuals are actually more harmed by parents that are completely apathetic and neglectful on the topic or those that are actually experiencing this spiritual harassment.
1: Uh, they're both incredibly harmful. Um, but I, I guess being ostracized, being kicked out of a family is probably the most harm that can happen. You're you're, you're like literally not a part, you're not there anymore. You're not a member of the family. So that's, that is probably the worst thing. And that's what happened to her. Like her family, yeah. when she said they didn't invite her, they, they, they just stopped talking to her. They stopped invite, they just She was not part of the family anymore.
0: One of the things I notice on this show, kind of playing off of that the apathy and neglect type of issue, there's also today, more so than ever, incredibly supportive parents. Um, even within the Bible Belt, there's incredibly supportive parents. Um, but what I find whenever I ask those people on this show to talk about their coming out story It's almost like you see a physical feeling of shame that they don't have such a toxic story uh, to tell people. Hmm. Have you have you noticed a shift as we progress um, and kind of uh, maybe talk about what we can do uh, to kind of embrace those stories of accepting parents within the Bible Belt?
1: Well, yes, we definitely want to hear those stories and we we want to have those stories be more publicized because that would give, you know, the parents that are struggling with homophobia some role models to follow. So those are very good stories to hear. And, uh, and, you know, you want to feel good and happy about the fact that your family is supportive of you. There's no shame in that, for sure. And we don't want to have shame for anybody for any reason. Shame is a toxic emotion that uh does no one any good. So, you know, releasing all shame is a positive thing. I do want Absolutely. to go slightly on what we were talking about 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 some parents being more accepting. And I'm thinking about the, the partner that we just talked about. Well it turns out her father was the one because when he died, her mom brought her back into the family. Um, and the same thing just happened with a friend of mine here. Her her father died and then her mom is like, you know, super yeah. supportive and curious and her niece is out and her niece is living with her and her niece brings her girlfriend all over the time and her niece is like kissing on the sofa with her girlfriend and and her mom is like you know really growing in her 80s and meanwhile my friend wasn't even out to them even though she was in a 30-year relationship until her dad died so it's like it's interesting that dynamic too
0: and just to comment on that i, I think that a coming from a fundamentalist family um uh, there is such an air of, and I would say that happens a lot more frequently with the father figure, uh, because the wives are expected to obey. You know, they are uh, in reality more property than person. Um, a lot of times when considering those fundamentalist views of, of women in the church, you know, uh, in my church, women were not allowed to speak. They were not allowed to pray. They were not allowed to do those things. They had to basically obey. Um and so I could definitely see where, you know, a mother in that situation may be more accepting of the child, but have no ability to voice that to them. Um, and it's an absolute shame that they, they don't have the courage to do that, but it still happens because of that. And just a, for instance, uh, in my own scenario, um, I recall, as I said, my brother is a Baptist minister, um, and his wife, um, I know for a fact had LGBTQ friends in high school, um, for a fact, I I know because she's talked about them and stuff. Um, but whenever, basically whenever my brother got into a little scandal, um, issue, everything started turning around to, well, you know, well, mom, you accept Curtis and he's gay. You know, you got to accept all of my scandals too. Uh, type of situation, and it's one of those things. Being gay is something that they can immediately divert the energy in the room to, uh, you know, let's let's start throwing rocks at him. Uh, but the the thing I noticed most in that scenario was that the wife switched and started accepting him and started casting the blame on me being gay. And has since just totally done a uh, kind of conversion on that. The, you know, she doesn't have gay friends. Gay people are bad. Those kind of things. Like, homosexuality is awful. Um, so I definitely see a lot of fundamentalist issues whenever it comes to the women and, and the male role. Um, so I think that probably explains a little bit about that. Um, but I definitely see those stories a lot, too. Um. I'm going to ask one more question and then we are going to take a break um, and then come back on. And then I really, uh, in this next section, we're really going to start addressing fundamentalist. Um, So that's, it's going to be rough, uh, especially for me. Um, As our experiential stories kind of continue to change over time. um, And this kind of goes back to the idea of being ashamed of not having that toxic culture um, or coming out story. Um, do you see a growing fear of relatability um, within the LGBTQ plus community? Um, So for instance, I see a lot of things that are kind of sponsoring kind of like an internal hate within our own communities based on our various experiences. Um, So for instance, I've heard people talk about, well, they didn't experience what I experienced. Um, They have no ability to relate to me. Um, and, and a lot of that's also coming down to the transgender stories. Um, I hear so many LGB people that say it's the LGB community, not the LGBT community. Um, can you kind of address that? Does that stem from uh, the biblical issue?
1: Um, well, that's a big topic and I'll just scratch the surface of it. When, when I, when I come across that, I, think that that's an illustration of trauma like that's one of the consequences of trauma like I experienced this terrible thing so you should have to experience this terrible thing too right (laughs) Um, which is super flawed thinking but then of course traumatic thinking isn't really very logical Uh, and illustrations of internalized depression you know and horizontal hostility so these are tools of domination so Um, The ways that, some of the ways that majority group members maintain power over minority group members is to foster horizontal hostility, which is, you know, tension and infighting um, between members of a minority group. So pitting LGB people against T people or B people against everybody is it just, is a way, it's like the lobsters in the pot. Like people will keep themselves down and you don't even have to do the work of oppressing them if they're oppressing themselves. Um, So I I see that happening. It's just basically the politics of domination. And we we grew up in a a culture of domination. So of course we've learned all this. So we have to deprogram ourselves. And then we're going to keep finding like knee-jerk reactions at times that just to groups that are different than us. So, you know, trans people who go through gender identity change, I mean, that's really different than being gay and coming out as gay. And a trans person can also come out as gay. But that can be foreign to gay people. So they have to work at at learning about that and thinking about what that means to them in a way that's loving and be an ally. And um, so that requires, you know, critical thinking that not everyone is equally good at and equally educated in, especially if they've got a lot of trauma, like terrible, terrible experiences, clouding their ability to perceive very well.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a perfect answer. And I definitely see this a lot from, uh, you know, more conservative individuals within the LGBTQ community. Um, And unfortunately, I do think that it is, it does stem a lot from our traumatic experiences, our our biblical upbringing and and those kind of things. So, um, you know, it's kind of like, in a way I see these individuals doing a lot of what kind of like my brother did in that scenario of, well, their sin's worse than mine. So let's uh, point to them so that everything's okay uh, for me type of situation. And so that's something I I definitely wanted to address just because I know there's people out there experiencing that um, and to kind of combat that within uh, ourselves. So um, on that
1: note. Can I comment on that story real quick about with you and your brother? Is that right? cuz I think yeah. that happens quite a lot and I think it's just so wrong because he, I don't believe in sin. Like I don't I actually don't think that I like, got not a I don't believe in sin. But if I'm going to use the sin paradigm, his sin is definitely worse. <laughs> like his sin is like indescribably indisputably worse because whatever it was was a choice. Yours is not a choice. So for him to, like, take something that's a choice and conflate it with something that's not a choice to manipulate everyone and detract attention from his flaws is just infuriating. So I'm super mad about that on your behalf (laughs) right now, just thinking about it.
0: Uh, Well, I I definitely appreciate your fury because, you know, I've I've experienced that, too. And that was, uh, you know, a lot of things like that happen uh, that are very traumatic because... You know, you you feel like everything's going good, and then when something bad goes wrong in someone else's life, all of a sudden the spotlights get turned to you again. Um, And I think that happens so much in the Bible Belt because, uh, as we'll discuss in this next uh, part, uh, dealing with fundamentalist uh, culture of that being gay is the worst sin imaginable. Um, So I am going to pause us here. Um, It's already been a great discussion. I think people are going to really get a lot out of this. Uh, But I'm going to pause and then we'll continue uh, after this break with Addressing Fundamentalist. This interview segment is sponsored by Just Fund Kentucky. Just Fund Kentucky is an endowment that supports the many community groups that are fighting for fairness and equality around the state of Kentucky. To learn how your organization can apply for this grant funding each year, go to www.justfundky.org. Again, that's www.justfundky.org. All right, welcome back. Uh, we are again with Bernadette Barton, who is the author of Pray the Gay Away. Um, if you heard the first part of our conversation, we d- addressed a lot about the expectations, a lot about uh, the coming out process within the Bible Belt. Um, But now we're going to turn to something that is a lot more difficult to face. Um, And it's something that we have specifically in the Bible Belt, uh, and that is fundamentalist. Um, In the book, you talk about uh, those uh, basically who use the scripture uh, to condemn homosexuality, um, that they actually don't believe that they are homophobic or discriminatory. Uh, Can you kind of address that?
1: Well, they perceive themselves as doing what god wants and so that's the master status that's the most important thing they're following god's law there it isn't about them it isn't about what they want it's about what god wants and it's not up to them to decide what god wants that would be presumptuous it's it's like they get a free pass because they're just following what they perceive to be the will of god
0: yeah and I love that you you talked about that in essence, uh, they basically get this free pass, you know, that they don't have to uh, consider any of the harms uh, that are that are done because it's God's will. And, uh, you know, it's the phrase God's will be done, you know, type of scenario. Uh, so I guess you do a lot of that uh, for them, that reflection. And you talk a lot about the consequences of ostracizing family members um, and those sort of things. Can you give us some of like the emotional, uh, psychological and social consequences there of doing that?
1: Ooh, they're huge.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, well, when you ostracize someone and, you, and they don't get to be a full member of a community, um you don't get access to all their resources and talents. So they're not a full participant. So they can't share with you what their gifts are. So there's that loss there. If you kick a family member out of the family, well, they're not gonna be there to pick up the kids after soccer practice. And they're not gonna be there at Thanksgiving. They're not gonna bring their broccoli casserole. They're not gonna keep you up to date on what cousin Sarah is doing. They're not gonna help mom when she breaks her ankle. You know, so you lose that set of resources, you lose, you lose, you know, a person in your life who you could count on otherwise, not to mention doing untold harm to the person who's been, you know, kicked out. Right. Among many others. And that's the same oh, yeah. in the workplace <laughs> and it's the same in the church. It's the same in the neighborhood. It's the same if you're a teacher in any in any environment. If you can't really be yourself, you can't give the most you could possibly give.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I notice even about myself, and so I'm sure there's other LGBTQ people out there that kind of experience this is even dealing with some of those fundamentalist family members. um and there are things that they could lose by ostracizing me, you know, and, and I have been in the past, you know, there's been Christmases that I could not attend because I had a friend with me that was a boy, you know, or like mm-hmm. that wasn't even a boyfriend, you know, like had no mm-hmm. connection with whatsoever, but I have had those experiences and it's, it's caused a lot of loss for my nieces and nephews and various things there that, that they could have experienced, you know, I'm um, uh, probably am the most successful person in our family um, in terms of, you know, academic level and achievement and that sort of thing. Um, So it's like, you know, I have a lot to offer in a way, (laughs) not to toot my own horn, but, you know, you have a lot to offer that that's different than what, uh, you know, their children can experience elsewhere. Uh, But what I find myself doing is even having dealt with those uh, ostracizing moments, I still help. And I will still give the shirt off my back a lot of times if needed, you know, type of thing. Did you find that other LGBTQ people in your research did that, even having experienced those things?
1: Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Overwhelmingly so. Overwhelmingly, LGBT people wanted to be members of their families and they Bent over backwards to give, even when they were being treated like second-class citizens. And did actually, you... I say LGBT, but I did not interview any trans people for my book. This was in yeah. like two thousand seven to two thousand eleven, so this was before right. um, kind of the revolution in trans awareness and trans rights. So I don't have data from that in my book, but I have spoken with trans people, and I think a lot of the stories are are applicable. So.
0: Right. And I, I definitely, uh, for viewers, I definitely know that you've been doing this for uh, decades. So, so you know, I know you've heard stories since publishing this book and totally understand, you know, expanding on, you know, from people that you heard and just things in the community. Uh, do, do you think that doing those things, those actions of just wanting to be a part of this family, regardless of dealing with the second class citizen uh, standing, how do you think that that do you think that's productive at all do you think it's something that we should do or do you think that it's something that you've seen negative side effects more so than positive
1: i think that it's going to be contextual and case by case and it's not up to me to say um i I think that people need to follow their inner guidance i I do think if you're in a dynamic where you're being abused it's not healthy and it, it, you should get out of that. Like something needs to change about that, that it isn't good for you to let yourself be abused um, emotionally, psychologically, of course, physically, but you know, you don't, it, it's not, it's not okay. So um, I, I don't, sometimes I actually think more change would happen if gay people were not quite so giving and a little more challenging. Yeah. It might, you know, and make an impact. So, but I think that that comes from a lot of internalized shame, that um, there's something so terrible about me for being gay that I'm just going to scoop up these crumbs of family love and just do everything I possibly can to make you love me, um, even though I have this horrible thing about being gay. And, And a lot of families reinforce that psychology, and then they get this kind of, like, slavish quality sometimes from um a gay family member. So Yeah. I definitely are- um uh,
0: okay. what I what another thing that really shocked me is that, that there was the story of uh the girl who actually apologized to her family for being gay. You know, and I I think that's uh some of the shame that we experience is this idea that, you know, even if it's something that is uh completely natural to us, it's it's who we are as people, there are things that are gonna come about that are hurtful to our family members. Um, you know, people are going to give them the cold shoulder, uh, in church. People are going to view them differently, talk about them, uh, because they have a gay child. Um, and, uh, I've, I've done a lot of studying on, uh, the fear component of, uh, coming out and basically, uh, Dr. Uh, Albrecht, I think is how you pronounce his name. It talks about the five fears that everything can be compartmentalized into one of those fears. Um, and I'm of the persuasion that coming out is its own unique thing because it's the only thing that I can think of um, that I've been able to brainstorm about that actually whenever you do it, you have the possibility of facing all five of those unique fears at once. Um, But when reading your book, there was actually something that I'd never thought about, and that was the idea of the parents and their reactions, and the one that actually tried to commit suicide because she learned that her child was gay. And the only thing I could think that that would fall into is like this worthlessness for, you know, the mother. But I don't know what the fear would be, because I know we have a fear in the sense of, what our family members might do to themselves. Um, can you kind of talk about some of those parental reactions um, and things?
1: Well, that, that was a pretty extreme case. And, I, and I, think, right. I think she was having some mental health struggles anyway, but I think for her, it was this sense of having failed as a mother somehow that was connected to that. Mm-hmm. And it was so important to her to have this perfect family. And um, that was shattered yeah. by this idea of her gay son. But, but some families, they they are very much about what other people think. And this idea that somehow a gay child, it's very, it, there's a lot of, I call it, well, I don't call it. I draw on Irving Goffman, who's a sociologist. He uses the phrase sticky stigma. So there's a lot of sticky stigma with homosexuality. And um, so parents think that gay children can bring dishonor to the family, can can make them look bad, may make them get kicked out of their churches. They make the neighbors talk about them. They make their own parents ask them what they did wrong. How did you end up with a kid like this? Are you such a terrible dad or mom that your kid is like this? And just, you know, all that stuff they're dealing with if if they are in that kind of homophobic culture.
0: Yeah. Uh, And a lot of our viewers are actually parents. I mean, a great deal. I would say 40% of our listeners, um, from my kind of rough standards, I would say are parents of LGBTQ children. Um, Some are looking for guidance. What would you kind of advise them if they are having some of those kind of feelings to kind of reflect on um, so that these kind of things don't happen, I guess, is the, and I know that's a very deep question, but um, maybe you've had some experiences when, when doing the research there.
1: Well, I think it's really valuable for parents to join PFLAG, the Parents and Friends of Lesbian and Gays, and that that connects them with other parents. And then they can share stories and tips and advice, and that is just incredibly powerful and valuable. Um, and then there's just lots of reading you can do. I think my book's honestly a great place to start in terms of yeah. laying out the dynamics of what's going on. And, and what I hope my book does and my work in general is is allow people to take all this internal stuff that's unprocessed and um, come out baked into us through socialization and belief systems and take it out of us and put it out there, externalize it and say, this isn't about me, this is about the culture. Like, I don't need to accept all these ideas that the culture told me. Like, I I get to pick. So let's walk through all these ideas and see which ones I actually really agree with. And then those ones I'll... I'll, I'll Dig my teeth into and think on but the rest let me just shed those those aren't those aren't about me those are about other people and when you can externalize a system of oppression you're so much more powerful than it then it can't control you in the same way and then and then i think people just don't even care as much about all that stuff that doesn't really matter like if you think about some neighbor who you don't even like what their opinion of you is compared to this child that you've loved and raised and created and their well-being like if you're going to balance the scales there, obviously, you know, the scales should be weighted in favor of this child that you love, not this neighbor who is annoying. Like, so yeah. so <laughs> to you release your, you, you know, your concern about what the neighbor thinks, good.
0: Right. I I definitely agree. Um, one thing that I, I want to address, because I know that I, I do it, and this is a chance for us to kind of talk to the parents out there uh, listening to this show, is... I know for me, even though, like, for instance, my mother's accepting, you know, she has come a long way from where we we started, but she was accepting from the point I came out, honestly, as someone who was truly unconditionally loving. And so I'm so thankful for that, um, especially in relationship to how the rest of my extended family treats uh, the scenario. Um, But something that that really bothers me still, and and we've had our discussions about it, so she's not going to be surprised if she listens to the show is it still bothers me that she's capable of going to uh these churches Mm -hmm. that that still preach against homosexuality and that still have these strong staunch members that that in my opinion are doing so much damage that as you say it is abuse it's child abuse and i've tried to voice that concern um and so i just want to warn parents out there that if you even if you are accepting Your child could be having these thoughts about it if you still continue down the path that hurt them uh, so much. I mean, having to listen to that constantly every Sunday type of thing, um, they're going to have issues with with you still in those environments. And, you know, especially because in a lot of your fundamentalist churches, your women can't speak up, um, Mm. which is in general stupid Excuse my uh, getting passionate here, but um, that's what I've noticed. And so I just wanted to kind of make families aware that to consider your child's opinion whenever you are going back to those places. Um, I do want to turn back to fundamentalist. And uh, I love the uh, phrase that uh, compromise and accommodation are, are not in their vocabulary um, because I find that to be true. Um, you, you also said that the, they believe a gay relative cannot reasonably argue their well-being within the family system uh, is more important than what God thinks about homosexuals. And I, I really do find that to also be true. There's always something out there that they can use to say, well, you know, being gay is wrong. Um, so I wanted you this is going to be a very hard story for me to probably hear and I definitely cannot tell it. Um, but I wanted you to talk about the story that impacted and really traumatized me, uh, was the Joshua story in the book and what happened to him and the, the, the dealing with his parents. And there's, uh, once you kind of tell that story, there's some specific points that I really want to touch on.
1: Okay. Um, that's a long story and I will tell it. Um, so Joshua, um, Joshua came up to me when I was working on the book, and I met him at Moorhead State. I was at a faculty member's house for a Christmas party, I believe, and he had heard about my project. People, when I was working on this book, would come up to me a lot and, and, and want to share their stories. And he actually asked me, because uh, I was in women's studies, too, and he asked me, he felt like his experience was the equivalent of a spiritual rate. Right. And he wanted, you know, my opinion on whether it was appropriate for me, for him to use that language. Because, you know, that's language that's specific to a certain act. And then he proceeded to tell me this story. And, well, actually, we met later. (laughs) He told me a little bit of the story, but we ended up having a very, very long interview. Um, And Joshua had grown up in Georgia, and he had been a member of a very um, close-knit fundamentalist family, and he grew up in one of those alternative Christian communities where, like, it was Christian everything it was Christian programming, Christian music, Christian schools, going to church Wednesday and twice on Sunday, and youth everything Christian everything. And he was he liked it. He, his family was loving. They were they were different in that they were um, kind of singularly homophobic, but they were otherwise seemed to be reasonably good parents, you know so he was he he liked his christian upbringing he had some feelings that he might be gay which he was terrified of um and repressed because he was afraid it meant he wasn't saved uh, and told the story about the lamb's book of life and his name not being written in it and some some very like specific you know christian references from this culture And um, he wanted to go to a Christian college, but he got a full scholarship to the University of Georgia, so they couldn't really afford to go send him to a private Christian university. So that's how he ends up at the University of Georgia. And then when he's there, he already he immerses himself in Christian everything. He joins the bull, the the bull uh, anyway, the Christian group and the fellow Christian, and he puts a Christian poster on his door, et cetera. Um, But it doesn't take too long before he's exposed to just a lot of other people and a lot of ideas, and he finds himself attracted to a man and uh, he decides he's going to um, testify to him and change him. Well, that just doesn't right. work out. <laughs> so pretty. Quickly. I did that
0: exact same thing. Uh, really? with, yeah. With, yeah. With one of my gay best friends, I did that exact same thing. So I, I definitely felt that uh, in the story. So <laughs> go yeah.
1: yeah, well, that went south pretty quickly. And it went from him changing his, his friend to, in having this magical kiss where everything crystallized and he realized he was, in fact, gay and that that was OK. And he was he was he was all right. He, he felt like that made sense of his life. And he was he didn't know quite how to deal with the Christian stuff, but he just felt like this was right for him. Uh, but meanwhile, he doesn't want to tell his family because he doesn't think they're going to react well. Uh, So he's going home for the summer and he's actually still like a youth minister in his church. And he's the one with the trunk full of clothes where he's changing back and forth, depending on where he's going. And he's dating David and keeping it a secret from his family. Um, But then it all comes out when he and David are going to his, I think it was his grandmother's house for, who was accepting for like a nice meal. She was having them over for dinner and his parents found out about it and Started to come over, like they were going to confront him, and he got afraid. And he and David fled in their car back to the University of Georgia. and And Joshua was really scared, and so was David. He wasn't out to his family. He didn't think it was going to go well. So he goes up to the dorm. David literally goes to his own room and hides in the closet. Joshua warns the resident advisor that his parents are coming, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And the RA is like, "Should I call the police? What should I do?" And Um, So Joshua just is there waiting. His parents arrive and they confront him about it. And he's, he manages to say, yes, you know, I'm attracted to, to, I'm gay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to a man and they just freak out. They tell him that if you're going to be involved in this gay lifestyle, you're not doing it with anything from us. And they proceed to take everything out of his dorm room. Like take his sheets off his bed and take his, his computer, just take all of his clothes, just take everything out of his room and put it in their car. And if you this is like such a poignant story, but just to imagine it happening in a dorm room. That's a very public place. You've got all the other kids that are up there like watching this happen in the RA, like freaking out and and um Joshua's telling the RA, no don't call campus security. My parents are gonna do what they're gonna do. And um, they take his car and like and then they say once they've emptied his room that if you don't come home with us right now, we're never gonna let you see your little brother again. So that's a pretty big threat. So he goes home with them, which is about an hour away from campus. And they had called ahead and they had a minister there from the church to pray away the gay. So to do an exorcism on him. So he says his dad's really tall, and Joshua's not a very big man, he's maybe five, seven or so. His dad's real tall, the minister's real tall, and they were blocking the way, and they were laying hands on him, and they were they were trying to exercise the demon of homosexuality. And he said that was a moment when they extinguished my love for Jesus Christ, which was really a powerful statement because if you buy into the fundamentalist paradigm that the worst thing you can do is to extinguish someone's love for Jesus Christ. Like that's like high treason in Christianity. Like there's literally nothing worse you can do than to drive someone away from Jesus. And that's what he described as happening at that moment. And that's what he described of as a spiritual rape. And then, um, so that went on for several hours and then everyone got exhausted. And then he heard there was a, a, a plan afoot to send him to a conversion therapy camp in Florida Finally, he's like, no. No, I'm not going. I'm going back to school. I'm not going to go. And his father drove him back to school. And this is just such a little sad little moment. He, He stops at like a Crystal Hamburgers, gets him some hamburgers, and then leaves him at the corner and said, that's the last food you'll ever get from me. And that's it. They took all of his stuff, and he had to kind of figure out his path at that point. And he was helped by a French professor and university resources. And they kind of helped him get his life back and but it, you know that was a very violent break from his family and just such a a scary and ter- you know a, upsetting tale to tell
0: yeah and i i definitely think that it's uh one that is relatable to a lot of people that that grow up in the Bible belt i don't think that that's really you know and i don't want to sound desensitized but You know, there are countless people we've even had on the show that have dealt with that same scenario of being, you know, cast out of their families, being uh, exorcisms performed on them. Um, You know, I had a boyfriend uh, in college that his parents actually sent him uh, the paperwork uh, so that he could become emancipated from them. Um, you know, and because they, and they almost, they were trying to force him to do that, uh, by law so that they didn't have to do anything with him any further. Um, so it's, I, I th- it was the first time I'd ever heard, you know, that phrase used of spiritual rape. And I think that was one of the points in in the book that, I mean, it was very triggering, um, and. You use this line that I think described it so well in the sense of, you know, he was trapped in this room and it's uh, you state seeing no physical advantage in the situation. His best choice was to submit to what he perceived as spiritual rape in order to survive it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically in that scenario, he, he said, you know, uh, pray for me. I'm broken. He He submitted to them in a way that they could feel like they were making some sort of impact Um, which uh, ironically (laughs) to me that in and of itself, it it reminded me of the very essence of the idea of salvation, you know, to submit to a higher power uh, Mm -hmm. in exchange for personal freedom and, and, and spiritual freedom. And this like intense moment, I think that's why it was really such a shell shock to me reading that story because I remember having some of those type of feelings of I'll just give them what they want, you know, so that, that I can be tolerated. And then I will um, just deal with that. And um, my coming out story, and I'll tell this for our viewers. um, uh, The first time that I ever actually started to come out to someone, I was incredibly suicidal. My mother worked at a dispatch Uh, center. And she was obviously working nights. Um, And the funny part of it is, is that it was, uh, I was watching High School Musical. um, And it was Zac Efron. And I was just obsessed with Zac Efron. You know, I was 18 years old. And he was, you know, the highlight of everybody's lives back then. Um, But he was, you know, super cute. And in my mind, I remember physically telling myself, you know, if I don't even have the opportunity to kiss this person. I don't even know if he's gay or not, which turns out he's not, unfortunately, but, but I don't even, you know, if I don't have at least the opportunity to kiss this person, there's no point in living any further. And you, you, you reach this point of just this tragic moment of there's nowhere else to turn. Uh, cause I was raised incredibly fundamentalist. I'm the only male in my family that was not a Baptist minister at some point. Um, so, dealing with that, you know, I called my mother and and she sent over uh, my brother uh who came over and had this experience to where i you know at that point, I was having homosexual thoughts you know that's that's the lingo that we use um in the fundamentalist church world and and to me, I was begging for help because i couldn't stop these thoughts and that that's the the mental uh process that we go through is we have this feeling of We need to change. We need to do something. Uh, And it's just, it's pure terror because we're we're not going to go to heaven. You know, we're not going to be able to see our families in the afterlife. We're going to be alone. It's going to be tragic. And so you you start telling yourselves all this as a kid and it becomes, uh, you know, these pivotal moments. And I think that's why so many LGBTQ youth in the Bible Belt commit suicide. Um, I'm hoping that those out there that may be struggling with this know that there's so many resources today uh, that can help you with that. There's the Trevor project. There's uh, shoot DMS, you know, on our Instagrams, whatever we're, we're here to help. Um, but through my experience, I, you know, I use the phrase, you know, I'm having homosexual thoughts and, Looking back, I was so angry about this for so long, um, because my brother literally, uh, there was a, you know, a Coke bottle on the table and he pointed the Coke bottle and he said, basically, um, do you want this Coke bottle up your ass? And I was like, no, like that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. And then he, he's like, well, then you're not gay. Um, and pretty much gets up and, and walks out. Um. So that was, and I was so angry for so long, but you, you know, decades later we're able to look back and, you know, I'm able to understand even though he's still uh, ridiculously religious and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I don't have any sympathy for the things that he's doing to abuse children. Um, but I look back and I realize that he was raised in this environment too, that he, as a heterosexual male, that has never had any experience, uh, like that. That was all he knew to address it as, um, because he had those, those, those same upbringings. Um, so like Joshua, I understand what it's like to have that moment of just, um, having spirituality, you know, shoved down your throat, um, and, and, and needing to seek that freedom. And so to get out of that situation, basically I said, you know, well, Okay, then I'm not gay and, you know, I'll, you know, go pray about it, you know, type of thing. And there was a period of about two years of my life from that point that I was back in the closet um, dealing with these traumatic things on my own, uh, things that I could not tell anyone. Um, And it wasn't until I got to college and started seeing the visibility. um, I, I remember specifically the instance that I was like, this is somewhat normalized was I was at the McConnell center. Um, because for those of you that don't know, I was a McConnell scholar. Don't hold that name against me. Um, I was still a hardcore Democrat in the program. (laughs) Um, but I was a McConnell scholar and I remember at interviews, uh, one of the individuals at the uh, social outing stated, uh, he's like, do you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? And it was so fluent. There was no pause. There was no break in that question. And to me, that was one of the first points that I started realizing things are going to be a little more accepting. There is an actual possibility that this is going to be okay. Um, So I know that was a lengthy story (laughs) to to bear through, but uh, something I did want to share with everyone um, to kind of understand that there are all these different viewpoints. And the things that are happening to you, the things your family members do to you, you also have to take it into consideration of what they've been taught, what they've experienced. And to me, it's, it was incredibly hard to forgive. Um, but the best thing that I ever did was forgive and just forgive the situation. Um, that's what kind of led me back to spirituality in general. Um, I don't practice the same religion that they do by any means. Um, but it definitely helped me cure a lot of the traumatic experiences in my life. Um, I, I well, uh, you I, you talked about it being the worst sin, and and I loved uh, what Brother Damien had to say um, when he paraphrased. I'm going to say that and then ask you the next question. But um, he, for the parents out there listening, you know, he paraphrased the Bible and he said, you know, for those who drive their children away from Him, meaning God it would actually be better if they had a millstone tied around their neck and were thrown in the sea rather than face his wrath and i i think we see a lot of that today i think we see you know for those of us that are spiritual we're seeing the repercussions of of the the bible belt doing this to lgbtq individuals for so long um it's nice to see some spirituality kind of coming back in our communities uh, that that respect lgbtq culture um so i want to kind of switch now um to the the depths of your research um you did some things that i would never in a million years do Uh, (laughs) you talked to the envisioners uh you went to an exodus conference uh you went to several different types of churches that said they were accepting but there were mixed levels uh you even took a, a class trip to the creation museum um which I believe now there's the Ark. I don't know. Have you been to the Ark yet? Since I have. then, yeah. so maybe uh, that would be something you can kind of talk about since it's not talked about in the book. Uh, is your experience uh, at the Ark? Um, but overall, you were in the fire. I would say you know you went mm-hmm. you went to these places. Um, what was your general perception going through those that process?
1: Well, before I talk about that, I just want to say thank you for sharing your coming out story. And that was very moving. And I I wish you hadn't had to go through that. And I was kind of rethinking. I was thinking in my head, like, imagine it had all played out differently. Imagine you had had a loving family and you could have dated openly in seventh grade and taken a boyfriend yeah. to the prom and all that stuff. Like, could have saved you years of pain that just were so unnecessary. Yeah. So to the parents out there, just your kids don't need to suffer. It's just that we just don't need that. It's not necessary.
0: Yeah, I actually, I, I've referred to that a lot, the that experience as for gay people, it's the hole in their heart that they're going to be trying to fill for all those lost experiences for the rest of their lives. That's the point in which we, are constantly examining, you know, we, we couldn't have, uh, relationships when we were younger. We couldn't have, you know, a family that loved us enough to invite our significant others into the home. Um, those are things that were lost experiences that we can never get back. And I think that's why so many of us do struggle, uh, with this trauma. Um, and, and I think we do spend a lifetime, uh, chasing those things. So.
1: And the um, developmental stages too, like you learn mm -hmm. things in those, you learn things when you have your significant over Mm -hmm. for Sunday dinner with your family and, you know, you go ice skating together, whatever it is, you just like, you work through romance and breakups and pain. Like, and if you don't get to do that, you have to do it later.
0: Yeah. Very true.
1: Um, anyway, so Going to the Croatian Museum, going to the Exodus Conference, going to the churches was extremely uncomfortable and weird. <laughs> yeah. So um, there was a lot I learned, though, because I, I write about it in the beginning of the book. I, I found fundamentalism to be completely mysterious to me because I was raised Catholic, which is not the most, like, accepting religion. But I was raised Catholic in the Northeast. It, with a politically progressive family, and it was like after Vatican II, so it was like, like, a, like a heyday for Catholicism. Being like, I just don't remember it being really talked about in Catholicism. Like that, it, you know, with Catholics, what they do is um, there's all these rules, and then everyone just ignores the rules. Like you, yeah, there's a rule you're not supposed to masturbate, <laughs> and a rule you're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, and like, but people just ignore them, and nobody talks about it, and nobody makes a big deal out of it, and I just thought that was the norm. And, and one thing I learned writing the book is everyone thinks their own religious experience is the norm. So I just didn't understand the fundamentalist opposition to homosexuality because I thought, well, that's just a really dumb rule. And when there's a dumb religious rule, you just ignore it. That's what you do. You ignore <laughs> it. It's fine. You just ignore it. Not that that's ideal, but that was what. So I just didn't understand. I thought, I just thought it wasn't even true. I just thought that who really cares who you love i mean this has just got to be you know a big con like people aren't really like this like i actually thought that people were not like this that's how ignorant i was (laughs) so i had a long way to go to get fundamentalism i was not like curtis I, you know so it took me it took me a while to figure it out that people actually believed the rules and followed the rules and felt like their salvation was in threat if they didn't catholics like you're baptized you go to mass you're gonna go to heaven or maybe you'll go to purgatory but you know but the fundamental no it's like you're just one sin away from going to hell forever and that that was very foreign so um so I had to kind of understand the fundamentalist mind frame and that took a long time and it, it meant immersing myself in these environments and interacting with the people in them and that was really interesting too because they were just kind of regular people but they had these just very oppressive beliefs that were harmful and illogical but they were also just regular people so i was kind of constantly trying to process that and 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 figure out how someone who is seems like a reasonable person could walk around this museum and think that the earth is only six thousand years old and that humans you know roamed with the dinosaurs and that you know Cain married his sister i mean and they believed that they truly believed it and it was strange <laughs> so it, took, yeah. it was just uh, uh i i had to i had to accept it though it was true like the proof was in front of me like i saw people who were literally doing that so i had to believe that, that in fact they didn't they did think those things that were illogical so um that was that was hard and very uncomfortable and tense and the exodus conference was really hard that was that was so exodus it doesn't exist anymore but it's a big conversion therapy organization and this was the yearly conference and <laughs> that um, attracted gay people who were trying to change and then parents of gay kids and then wives of gay husbands. Those were like the three tracks of folks that went to that conference. And so that was that was quite something to immerse myself in. Yeah.
0: I'm gonna tell a real quick story here because yeah, for some reason, whenever you were talking about all this, about like um, the people, yeah, just kind of like the views of the church and stuff, it reminded me of a story and I think a lot of gay people that are born in the Bible belt and experience that fundamentalist religion do. And it's a comical thing to think about, but and I found myself doing it. And that's why I was laughing whenever my friend came up to me and he's like, I lost you for like five minutes. And he said, and I was so scared that the rapture had happened. <laughs> like, and the thing is, is like that is a legitimate thing that a lot of us still deal with and and I even catch myself like whenever like I can't find somebody that that you know I know that's a good person that's spiritual and all that I will be like oh my god I got I got left behind you know like you have this like but a lot of that is uh, even with gay people today you know that they even though we don't consider it a sin or even the whole thing like that, but it's something that's like always in the back of our mind is this like idea that we're going to get left behind, you know, like we're going to mm-hmm. get, you know, and that's something that's so hard to work through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved your story of, of the, you know, the Catholics and how they just, you know, kind of ignore certain things. Uh, but it seemed to me Exodus kind of reframed, um, homosexuality in the sense that mm-hmm. they kind of did that and like said that it was the same as lying or the same as uh, any other host of other things that are considered sins. Um, it did, it was not on an elevated level. Um, so my question, you've gone, you've gone to this conference and you talk to these people. Do you think that, you know, the recasting in that way, uh, that things like the Exodus program cause it to be a greater or lesser amount of time for those individuals to accept their sexuality as unchangeable?
1: Oh, I, uh, in terms of the people I interviewed who had engaged in conversion programs, it seems like for the most part, it took them longer to come out and and to accept their, accept themselves for who they were. It, it, it made it worse. There was one or two people who appreciated the ex-gay programs as kind of an intermediate limbo space to kind of figure things out as they were on their journey. Um, But really, they mostly caused harm. And in fact, when I teach about it, I remember in particular one student who was raised Christian fundamentalist in Louisville, like you, and uh, she was so critical of it all. And I would play, like, examples of, like, a, a preacher doing, like, like kind of spitting awfulness, and then I played uh, the um, keynote from Alan Chambers at that conference, and she actually thought the Alan Chambers keynote, which was much more loving and kind in his language, was much more harmful than the than the, you know, virulent preacher, because it was more seductive, and it kind of Uh, coded the problem in a way that trapped people. So she thought that was actually worse.
0: And I mean, I I would definitely uh, agree. I think that a lot of these types of programs, especially uh, the more extreme, such as conversion therapy um, and stuff like that, it's definitely harmful uh, to individuals. Um, Something I experienced, and I'm going to talk about it just so in case other people are having the same type of things is even if you don't go through a conversion therapy or if you don't go to one of these programs, a lot of us, uh, that were born and raised in, in, the Bible belt, we still do certain things to try to force ourselves to be straight. Um, you know, you hear constant stories of, uh, gay men that know they're gay that, that date women, um, and stuff like that. And, you know, I tried that up until I was 20 years old, you know? So, um, and what I found was obviously it, nothing worked. It was not uh, meant to be long-term. I could not develop that connection. Um, but I would say for those of you out there doing this, um, watch for the signs that you're doing to to kind of force yourself through those scenarios. Uh, so for instance, and I'll tell a kind of a funny story. Um, in college, I had a girlfriend and like, you know, she wanted to make out and stuff and I did not want to make out and stuff. Uh, but I did, you know, because that was like, I've got to do this. She's my girlfriend, you know, type of thing. And I would find myself like playing music like uh, David Archuleta or somebody that I was attracted to as a, like a musician or something like that to help myself get through those moments. Um, mm-hmm. So I just want to say, if you're out there doing things like that, then here's probably your sign that it's not going to work out. <laughs> like, so, um Anyway, I just kind of want to tell that story, um, because like I said, even if you don't go to those kind of camps or things, watch doing it to yourself, because a lot of times we are doing it to ourselves. Um, So um, you talk about that uh, these the fundamentalists and stuff, they believe that all LGBTQ people are inherently flawed um, and that you found that uh, in order to kind of participate in these clubs, uh, that the gays had to participate in their own oppression um, in order to be accepted, um, and stuff. Uh, yet I will ask some of the older LGBTQ individuals still took part in these programs, not by force, but by choice. Um, what did you find as the major, major motivational factors, um, from these individuals joining these programs? Was it more social acceptance, uh, like fear from hell or something else entirely?
1: I think it was uh, internalized homophobia, it was familial acceptance, and it was this deep fear that they would go to hell, that that God would not love them Mm -hmm. for being gay, and that they were damned, that their salvation was at stake.
0: Let's uh, talk about uh, internalized homophobia. Can you describe what that is to our viewers? Kind of, Um, what are the signs?
1: So internalized oppression is when you're a member of a minority group and you believe the, uh, the lie about your group. So you are, if you are gay, you, if you have internalized homophobia, which, which most people have internalized oppression um, if they belong to a minority group. So that would look like you would believe that gay people are inferior to heterosexuals, that gay people are promiscuous, that gay people really can't have relationships, that gay people don't like families, that, you know, anything that goes wrong in your life is probably because you're gay, because being gay makes everything bad. And, you know, you shouldn't hang out with gay people because they're just a bunch of crazy freaks and look at them wearing those leather tops and they just make spectacles of themselves. And if they just didn't flaunt it, maybe things would be a little bit better. So yeah. that's a little bit of the narrative
0: of internalized homophobia. Yeah. And I, I definitely think that uh, that is probably the major cause of some of the things that we've seen in terms of uh, gay on gay abuse, you know, um, right. is internalized homophobia within our communities. Um, so I definitely wanted to address that. Um, I want to turn our attention to what I'm gonna refer to as the blame game. Um, it's within LGBTQ culture. Um, So what I'm referring to is uh, a lot of times in our LGBTQ communities, uh, they get viewed in a negative way by society um, that points to issues in our community um, and kind of blames, well, it's the LGBTQ community that brings forth all this addiction issues, the mental health issues, the suicide rates, the risky sexual behavior. Um, And I, I believe your book does a great job at kind of getting to that it's not necessarily the the LGBTQ culture, but there's a different root issue that causes a lot of these issues. Um, I want to quote the book uh, with the statistics here. Um, And you state that those youth whose family responded negatively to their sexuality were 8.4 times more likely to report attempting suicide, 5.9 more times likely to be depressed, 3.4 times more likely to use illegal drugs, and 3.4 times more likely to report engaging in uh, risky sexual practices. And I'm sure those numbers have probably changed and progressed. Um, But my question to you is with this idea of uh, LGBTQ people in our own magazines, I see where there's articles written blaming the community for those things. Um, How do we combat that so that we can address the actual concern of the underlying cause, which is being rejected by the churches and and, and those kind of the traumatic experiences.
1: Uh well I'm gonna put on my sociological hat for a minute and distinguish between the individual level and the institutional level. So in American society we're really socialized into an individualistic view of the world, that everything is a result of our individual choices and actions, and that's why things happen the way they do. So if something bad happens because I did something bad, and if something good happens it's because I'm so smart and wonderful, I made it happen. Um, <laughs> we look at it from an institutional level, though, we see that certain groups have advantages that other groups don't have, and certain groups are disadvantaged. So if you keep your eyes on the institutional level, on the social context, you just hear a totally different story about addiction and risky behavior. The problem is not individual bad choices by bad gay actors. The problem is homophobia, an institution that encourages families to reject and abuse their gay kids. Of course, that's gonna cause them to have addiction issues. If your mom is gonna kick you out of the house and not love you because you're gay, that's what's causing you to have addiction issues, not your same-sex attractions. So the more that we can focus on the institutional problem and let ourselves off the hook as individuals and be loving to ourselves and one another, the more we'll thrive.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And I think it's so important for us to make those logical comparisons. Um, And I think we are seeing, I just wanna address it because I think we're seeing a total lack of it um, when it comes to a lot of articles being written about our community by our own community members. Uh, we are saying, you know, well, if the LGBTQ culture would, you know, get rid of the drug addicts or, you know, the, and that we're causing this by the bar scenes and all this kind of stuff. And in reality, you've got to utilize logic to realize that those kind of, uh, things are being caused by something that's much more rooted in people's past, um, and they're dealing with their own, uh, traumatic experiences and stuff through those things, um, mm-hmm. I just think as a community we need to do a lot better job of displaying that versus blaming ourselves because we're very good about blaming ourselves um especially in the bible belt so um
1: can i share peter's story because that's a really good illustration of all of that if you don't mind sure um so he was someone i interviewed who I, my end an interview. I'm like, "Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you about you want to know?" And usually, everyone says no. But he had a big story, and his story was about the first time he got together with a man. And he was older. I, I can't remember. I think he was in his twenties, and he had never been with a guy. He never, you know, been to a gay bar. So he's like, "I'm going to go to a gay bar. And I'm going to have sex. I'm sex. I'm not going to be a virgin anymore." And this was probably some thirty years ago. And so he had. So it's a little bit. I mean, gay bars are a lot of fun, but. It can be a little intimidating, maybe your first time going, especially. And I know now there's a lot fewer gay bars than there used to be. But anyway, gay bars often don't have a lot of signage. So sometimes it's even hard to find them because, again, the signage alerts people, you know, can attract people who might want to do harm. So it can be hard to find the bar. They're dark They're like, necessarily in the best part of town. So anyway, Peter gets to the bar. He goes to the bar. Then he ends up getting um, picked up by a hustler who takes him out to a field and tries to get money from him and uh, for drugs and then has like this kind of awful sexual experience which was his first sexual experience with a man and then he left that experience just feeling terrible about himself like he failed he was a bad gay man he can't do anything right being gay is like you're going to end up like you're going to be picked up by prostitutes and hustled for drugs and 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 it's like that's not the story (laughs) like Okay, so arguably that was a risky sexual behavior, but why did that happen? That didn't happen because Peter made a bad choice. That happened because he couldn't bring his boyfriend home for Thanksgiving dinner and go to prom. It happened because the culture didn't let it happen, not because he made a bad choice. So the saddest part of that story was that he blamed himself and not the system that didn't allow him to grow and experience things when he should have.
0: Yeah, That's exactly right to that story. I I think it's amazing to me just in my lifetime to see the progress, um, kind of like even the bars themselves in terms of accepting kind of we oppress ourselves. For instance, uh, whenever I first started going to gay bars, you couldn't use a credit card. You couldn't use a debit card. It was cash only. And the reason for that is because people didn't want to be able to be traced. They didn't want anything to show up that they were at a gay bar. So everything was cash only. Um, Now, obviously, we've progressed since then. But it's just to me, it's really interesting to see that dynamic that even in our gay communities, in our bars that were covered wall to wall, you know, you couldn't see through the windows type of thing that even inside you couldn't use your credit card because it might get traced back to you. Um, so I, I definitely yeah. think Peter's story is perfect.
1: <laughs> well, so if you think about this, this always strikes me because I just read the autobiography, the biography of one of the biographies of Harvey Milk that was written in the eighties. And, and it just, it's not very many years ago that you would get arrested in police stings. Like in, in my lifetime that happened, that's not that long ago. I mean, to a, to a 17 year old, that seems like a long time ago, but, but that 17 year old knows sixty five year old people who grew up were gay people were literally getting arrested by police, yeah. so it's been a lot of change in kind of a short time.
0: yeah, uh, one of our past guests that we just had on recently talked about how they would they would mark the tires on cars um, for the people that were near the gay bars and, mm. and things like that, even in Louisville. you know so mm. um, definitely things have changed, but it's so important to remember you know where we came from you know in regards to that. Um, I want to allow one opportunity just to kind of uh, allow you to expand on any research. Um, Obviously, this interview is actually taking place uh, the day after uh, Respective Marriage Act was signed by President Biden. Um, So that's a big deal in our news right now. Um, The book was actually published prior to gay marriage even being, uh, you know, allowed across the United States. Um, So I want to ask, how has the progression uh, since, you know, writing the book uh, been with the federal laws and how has that changed the expectations of coming out in the Bible Belt?
1: Well, I didn't expect gay marriage to their marriage equality decision to happen in twenty fifteen. I was really surprised. No. I thought it would be much longer, especially after I had immersed myself in fundamentalist culture and realized right. what they thought. So I was I was surprised and overjoyed. And um, I think that marriage equality and you know the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And the internet, you know, and all the resources that are on the internet. And then the much larger media representation of same-sex couples. So, for example, I was uh, flying to Massachusetts to see my mom for Thanksgiving and and walking down the airplane, to get into the airplane with Delta, there were pictures of passengers. And one of the pictures was a photo of a gay male couple, you know, just sitting on the plane snuggled up. So, like, that kind of representation was just unheard of. Right. Even, what, like seven years ago? I mean, it was just, you just didn't see that. So I think that's all really, really good. However, when it comes, and I think it's good for us even in the Bible Belt, but I will say we're slower than the rest of the country, that the the religious stuff is still holding us back. And, And I can say that partially because I have all my students do an assignment where they interview a Bible Belt LGBT person. And I give them a set of questions to ask that are similar to the questions I ask. And then I have them analyze the interviews. And one of the questions is, how much better are things than they were when Pray the Gate was published? And almost to a person, they're like, well, it's a little better. But there's, like, gory story after gory story after gory story in all of these interviews. So not as much progress has been made as I would hope.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a great point to point out, and that's something I, I considered whenever I was reading the book was, you know, the the progress that we've made. And yet, I think, especially with the family units, a lot, it's you still see the same reactions, the same things happening to, you know, our kids today. Uh, In the family unit. And a lot of that, you know, it kind of uh, trickles down in terms of, you know, if your government's supportive of something, if your church then becomes supportive, you know, it's, you're still going to have family units that hold out. And I think we've still got a lot of that here. Mm. Um, But on that note, I want to end on some bright things. (laughs) Because I know everybody uh, like me, it's, it's, it's difficult to go through a lot of these, these stories. Um, I want to quote two people that that I think gave some, some beautiful uh, statements on uh, kind of you know that kind of summed up their experience, uh, and one of them it said uh, it can 't be wrong to be something that you are. Uh, the only choice you have is whether you want to be happy or not uh, that to me is is very symbolic of I think what we all experience uh, after we come out. Um, another one wrote, uh, I produce, I direct, I create, and I am the main character in my show, and that makes life so much fuller. And so I definitely want to encourage everybody out there to take something from that and start creating your life uh, and be full, you know, as to who you are truly to yourself. Um, But I obviously have to end this interview with a question, uh, the final (laughs) question for you. And it's one that you should be well prepared for because you've asked it so many times. And that is, what do you like about being gay?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the last, one of the last chapters in my book is that I ask folks what they like about being gay because, you know, we're told so many terrible things. I like so much about being gay. I just, like, where should I start? I like the fact that I don't have to be in a heterosexual relationship with a man. Not that men are terrible, but uh, in a patriarchal society, (laughs) it's like you deal with a lot of shit when you're a woman. And with, in a heterosexual, like, all that patriarchy shit is, like absolutely exhausting it's like enough to deal with it as a woman in the world at least i don't have to deal with it in my house so i love being like getting you know being free of all that um i also love being a member of the queer community i love i i i feel like i fit there i feel a sense of belonging and connection i i feel like i get to be my authentic self among queer people I think that we're playful and we're creative and we have um, you know, different ways of perceiving the world that are, that are incredibly valuable and in different ways of managing power that I find fascinating. Um, so I like all of that very much. So those are some of the off the top of my head thoughts about what I like about being queer.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely love that chapter, you know, with everybody kind of giving their own opinions of what they loved, you know, after. And that is so true. You know, we deal with all these traumatic stories, but in reality, none of us would go back in the closet, you know, like we would not do that. We are so much happier and fuller uh, as individuals. Um, and so that's that's the message I want to get out, especially to any uh, rural individuals that are dealing with uh, the closets currently. Um, and dealing with the fact of, you know, potentially coming out in the new year, um, we are all, uh, it, it can be a difficult journey, um, very difficult, but I don't think any of us would change it in terms of we are happier now than we have could have ever been uh, by remaining in that closet. Um, so I just want to say again, thank you so much uh, for spending so much time with us. Uh, this is one of our longest, most important interviews I think we've ever done. And again, for those of you out there, it's Pray the Gay Away. Um, It's all about the extraordinary lives of Bible Belt gays. Uh, This is Bernadette Barton, uh, who wrote this book and and spent a lot of time uh, and research on it. Um, So go out there and read it. Um, I will again caution you, if you are experiencing some traumatic things, uh, this is a book that you want to maybe wait for the appropriate time to read it. Um, So thank you again so much uh, for being a part of this show.
1: Thank you for having me on the show. It's been really a wonderful conversation we've
0: had. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget to come on back now. I know we all love a little vibration. So if you're not already, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. And we will surprise you on occasion with a new release vibration in your pocket. But in the meantime, if you find yourself alone or crossing new horizons along the Rainbow Trail and you need a friend or even a laugh, to get you through those dark and stormy nights holler on out to us at www.weatherandrainbows.com where you can find shelter in the blog, videos and other episodes that will hopefully keep you out of a whole heap of trouble so until next time y'all giddy up Be true to yourself and make the best of life. And wherever the wild tracks may lead you, may the rainbow always touch your shoulders.